This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm speaking to Dave Buonaguidi, founder of St. Luke's and Karmarama Advertising Agencies. I first came across Dave through his strikingly clever screen-printed art, so I was honoured when he agreed to create some creative campaigning placards for our Shop Independent campaign. And then the more I spoke to him, the more I knew he had to be a guest on my podcast. Not only has he got over 30 years' experience in the advertising world, but his strong value system has much to be learnt from and admired. We met in central London for a coffee and a chat where we discussed the current state of the advertising world, how small business can win over big, and how, ultimately, we should all do what we love because the money will follow. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses. And I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. I first came across your work when I was creating a print wall for my home office and became obsessed. I bought your money notes printed with do what you love and the money will follow. It was then that I realised you were the genius who founded the infamous Karmarama advertising agency. And I took a deep breath and I popped you an email just recently and asked if you would join our campaign to help everyone understand to shop independent this Christmas. And lo and behold, I get an email back from you and it said yes. And we've created these seriously amazing placards, which we've actually carried here today in the rain for you to actually see. They're very, very cool, great works of art. And you were so kind because you donated them to our cause. Thank you. And thank you so much for coming here today. That's fine. Thank you. for uh, the, reason I, the reason I donated them as well is because I, I just think it's a bit cheeky to do things like that for money. But also because I've got a funny feeling they're probably illegal (laughs) because I'm using the Queen's head without permission. And my thing is, if I I claim responsibility for it, then I go to jail. But if I let everybody else print them off, then 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 I'm just one of... Hopefully, thousands of other people will go in jail, and they might just think, you know what, it's too too much admin. It's too much admin. Too much admin. Exactly. Just let let them go. So you've heard it here first. So get printing those placards out, please, everyone. Otherwise, Dave's going to jail. (laughs) Again, again, I'm very excited to be speaking to you today. You are one of those rare people that I feel is truly creative. So thank you, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for for being here. My first question is about your story. I would love for you to tell it how you came into advertising because you began working didn't you in your father's restaurant at the age of 14 so how did that turn into a career in advertising well one of the things you have to do when you're you know my dad's italian he came over in the 50s he set up a restaurant in fulham and chelsea and one of the jobs as the son of an immigrant is you have to work for your dad Uh, my job was working in the bar 
And as I got older, I was allowed to sort of do more things like handle cigarettes. And one of my jobs was, it was sort of strange, it was to, you always had to have a lighter on you because people would get to the bar, they'd drop their bags and then they'd get their fags out. And, you know, you, it was always good for the for the barman to lean over and, and you'd have to read it and, you know, understand when they were going to do it and so I, I do that, and I remember watch. I used to watch these people all the time because I, I wasn't very. I was very, very shy, not very good at kind of meeting strangers. And my dad is brilliant; that's his job. And I used to watch him kind of greeting all these amazing, good-looking people coming into the restaurant. And I'd watch all these people having lunch. They seemed to be eating lunch all day. You know, they'd get there at twelve thirty. They'd they'd <laughs> start eating at sort of one. They'd they'd eat through till three or four. Then I remember one guy said, "Franco, we're we're going through." And uh, I was like, what does that mean? He says, oh, we just changed the tablecloth. He's going to go into dinner. <laughs> it was called going through. And I remember thinking, Jesus, what do these people do? And my dad said, oh, advertising. And I was like, advertising, that's for me. <laughs> there were lots of agencies in that area, and they all used to use my, my dad's place, San Frediano, as a, as a canteen. And I just used to watch these people and just think, wow, they look, they look amazing. They have a great time. And just thought, right, fuck it, I'm going to try and get into advertising. But I'm, but I'm uh, not very bright. And I went to school and didn't get any qualifications, managed to scrape my way into art college, did graphics. There was no advertising course at the time. So I did graphics and then just stumbled. I've stumbled into every job I've ever had and then just managed to find myself. And purely through the people that my dad knew, actually, I, I, he knew so many people in advertising. And I would go through this. There's a magazine called Campaign, which is like the, kind of the advertising mag. And I'd go through it and he knew everybody in it. So I just thought, well... Bloody hell, I'll just write them letters. And those are the days where they would actually respond. And uh, I wrote these letters to these people and they all said, yeah, you know, um, you know, you know my dad. Could I, could I come and work at your place for two weeks? And they'd all go, yeah, absolutely. So I just work, did work experience at a lot of these places. And I did one in particular at JWT, which was a massive agency in Barclay Square. And I went in there and um, did two weeks and they paid me like a fiver a week. And then I just kept going in. And... Um, the bloke said, why are you still here? And I said, well, you're not paying me, so I'm just going to keep coming in. And he went, and he couldn't really understand. He couldn't <laughs> tell me to fuck off because I wasn't getting paid. So I just said, I'm just going to keep coming in and learning off you. And I got a job in a pub in the evening out near where I lived. And then I used to steal everything out of the... Out of, I'm going to get into trouble now. But I used to, they had a cupboard there at JWT that had all the markers and the rulers and just the most amazing stuff for, for like a you know, 17, 16-year-old boy. Finding that cupboard was amazing. So I used to just rinse it and I just stole everything I could. And then I went to college, went back to college with thousands of markers that I could then sell to other people. And I'm a horrible. It, I can really I just say it's that. no, well, can I just say it's actually just, I knew that this interview would be special because <clears throat> I actually started out working in advertising. Did and you? I was 17 years old right. and I started at publicist advertising. Publicist, right, yes, yes, I did. And do you know what I used to do? Right. I used to steal, steal all the coffee all, and the tea bags. Well, I was the tea girl. Okay. But did you know my trick was I used to steal so much from the stationery cupboard? Yes. This was my thing. I can't believe I've met another person who stole from the stationery cupboard. Well, it's it's because they buy in bulk. Yes. There's something fascinating about With lots bulk. of highlighters yeah. and tons of paper. Highlight. Metal rulers were my. It was my currency. When I went back to college, suddenly when you've got stuff that other people want, man, you're super popular. 
I literally, it's good. I'm glad I to have met somebody cope. else that has started that, off the career honestly, thieving. But to, to, honestly, my thing was the stationery cupboard. Yeah. I, I started work at 17. I did all my work experience when I was 15, uh, 16 in advertising. But also my job was the expense tab. On my tiny, tiny salary, which was £11,500, I would have to pick up the tabs for everyone's wine at lunchtime um, and then I would get into so much debt and we used to have pasta and wine every single lunchtime and we would do also that going through yeah. and I try and look back now and I think to myself <laughs> how did I work when I drank a bottle of wine smoked 30 cigarettes and it was very much this sort of mad men sort of era so I'm, I'm I really do feel that beginning stages there well I think the reason the, the way you managed to get through it through it was because everybody else had done two bottles of wine and 60 cigarettes everyone was <laughs> mullered the whole time the whole time it uh, was just a normal thing you yeah. talk about how drunk you were yeah, yeah. in the lift going back to work yeah I, I just, and in the morning you were talking about how the terrible hangover hangover yeah that and that you better go to the, and have a lunch yeah, so yeah, yeah brilliant but so okay so you carried on into advertising and you founded St Luke's Agency, which quickly became renowned, winning big clients such as IKEA. But most interestingly, it was the first ever cooperative agency. Yeah. Tell me a bit about what that actually means to be a co-op for those who don't understand what that system and that structure would be. And what did you learn? Oh man, these are big questions. But I the, know. I mean, I, so before St Luke's, I'd worked at a few different size agencies. So I worked at a little one called TBWA, another one called WCRS. So they were all agencies that named the, the initials of the three or four white middle class men that set them up. So that's the way the ad agencies always worked. And we were, I, uh, when I was 28, I got the chance to go and run with my partner at the time. So when you talk about founding, I did a lot of these things with this other guy, Narish. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had uh, we got we were working at a really good agency called HHCL, uh, which was probably the kind of the, looked upon as the, the sort of punk of the ad industry, which is pretty easy because ad ad industry is so vanilla. Um, but this this agency was really really uh, interesting and progressive, and we're trying lots of interesting things. And uh, we were kind of one of the young teams there, and we got invited by an agency called Chiat Day, which was this big American agency to come and run their London office. It had been a bit of a mess for a few years and they, they gave us the keys. I mean, we were like 28. I'd, I'd, I think I'd had probably two or three client meetings where I'd actually met a client. Most of the time, <laughs> somebody else would do that for you. And so we were like, well, fuck it. Yeah, let's just do it. We did that for two years and it went really, really well. We started, you know, we changed the culture. The Americans didn't really like coming over either. So they kind of left us alone. We had some good clients. We started turning the work around, got it all good, got the culture good, started growing the business. And then we got sold. Because what happens in these big networks is that the owners of Chiat Day would go, New York had a problem, but we solved that. London was a mess, but that started to get better. So all of a sudden, the lights on the dashboard of whoever owns it, Jay Chiat, they all start to glow red rather than you know the, the being out. And so I think suddenly somebody came along, TBWA, ironically, the mm-hmm. first place that I worked, came in and bought the whole, the whole ball of wax. And we had this really odd meeting where we all got carted down. We all got told to go down to a hotel in Russell Square and then we're going to tell us an announcement. And we'd been, me and the five, the five other people that were running the place at the time had been called up on the Sunday night, said they've just sold to TBWA. And I was like, what does that mean? They said, not good. And then we were all going to lose our job. So we kind of went in on the Monday. There was a really odd moment as well where they were kind of talking about how good it was. And 
all the the good and the you know the, all the partners at the agency in the states were all going. This means this, and it's good for this, and it's good for these clients, and it's good for these people in New York and LA, and it's all good. And then somebody said, "Hey, what wh- what about London?" And suddenly, and everyone in London perked up because nobody had spoken about us. And suddenly, the feed just went, <laughs> it just got pulled. <laughs> and so I think we all went, "Oh fuck!" <laughs> and then we just thought, "Well, what do we do? You know, we can either all just join in and get taken out, which is horrible." And uh, so we just said, fuck it, let's, uh, with the help of, you know, there were six partners at the time, or six p- people on the management team, one of whom is a guy called David Abraham, who has since gone on to run Channel 4. And um, he just said, fuck it, we're, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be part of this deal. Chiat Day got really, really angry about it because it made them, it kind of belittled them a little bit. But we just said, fuck it, we're not doing it. And we found rent-free accommodation for two years in Kings in Houston, which was a dump at the time and just took all the clients all the staff clients said yeah right well we'll we'll go with if you can guarantee the same people are working on our business on the monday as would have been on the friday we'll do it and so we just took the whole thing and moved it into these offices now of course we had to come up with a new name and and also that gave us an opportunity to try something different we'd all been shafted by one person jay in the states who had suddenly been given a check for you know however many millions of dollars and we didn't want to be fucked over again by that happening so we came up with this concept of of doing something that where everybody was an equal shareholder everybody had a right to have a voice in a company now i personally find that really invigorating i've, I've worked in lots of really small startups one one in particular was hal henry hhcl and i was there when there were six people now when you're in a small place and you're with the partners i was you know 22 23 but you're listening to your bosses who are pretty serious players in the business you're sitting next to them you're involved in it and you can join in or choose to opt out if you want to but you're in there and i absolutely love that and um and so when we set up the new business we just said well i want everybody to feel like that and all of us did you know i looked at the room and there were 35 people all of whom were so young and it was an amazing moment to sort of sit there and think jesus you know we can actually try and do something that just busts it all open so we just thought well let's try something different so we did it as a co-op everyone was an equal shareholder Everyone from Rose, the cleaner, who was this Jamaican woman who was probably in her 50s at the time, who used to clean. She was paid a salary that would reflect the job she did, but she was an equal shareholder with myself uh, and everybody else. And it was a beautiful moment. It was an amazing thing. It happened, I think, 25, 30 years too early because just people just couldn't get their heads around it. What, what was your learning? We went to, a, to the TUC building up in, in Hampstead for a day out. Where an all agency workshop where we said, right, we've got a chance to do something completely different. What should we do? So why don't we start by not calling it what everybody else does? Apart from the fact that I'm Bonaguidi, the guy I was working with is called Ramchandani. There was somebody else called Zamboni, Law, Abraham, and Grant. So you've got the worst possible name. Can you imagine trying to get somebody yeah, to answer the phone? Yeah, I've been petrified trying to trying to remember even those think names. about saying your name Let alone today. State, you'd have to have a building 50 yards long just to get the name down it. <laughs> and so we, um, we said, well, if we want to do something different, let's start with a name. So I was tasked with coming up with a name. And I found we, we used to work with a lot of clients who were sick at the time. And we used to do this thing that we call brand turnaround. So you'd work with somebody and you'd try and revive them. And I think that's a really interesting role for a consultant or an ad agency to do. Not just do ads, is to actually help their business thrive rather than just keep making money out of them. So I like the idea of, you know, we made people well with our creativity. And I just happened to find out that the patron saint of doctors and artists is a guy called St. Luke. We just had lots of interesting ideas. So it was all about hot desking, 
technology was coming in. We learned a huge amount of technology about technology from the guys at Chiat Day, you know, the internet. There was a thing called Qmail when we first started, which is email. But I remember talking to people and they were going, yeah, I, I live in, you know, sort of Ohio. And I said, yeah, but, but you work in LA. And he says, yeah, I just got this thing called Qmail and I just do my ideas and then I send them over. And I was like, what the fuck is Qmail? And how does that work? He's like, yeah, we've got this thing called the internet. I was like, what is that? And it was just amazing. And so suddenly we had, you know, didn't have to have landline phones. You could have mobile ones that you could just plug in. Just tried everything. But as a result, of we, we just got rid of a whole bunch of things that we knew loads about, but then we discovered a whole bunch of things that we had absolutely no idea how to solve, one of which was people. People, well, the thing I learned most, people are fucking weird. They're really, really weird. <laughs> and they will default to being arseholes so quickly. My thing was always, should we always, always be equal ownership? And then the following year, when there's 50 people, but the company's worth a lot more, we get it valued and we divvy up the shares again equally. So we take them all back and we reissue them. Well, the same 21-year-old that was sitting there going, oh my God, I'm so grateful and thankful that I've been given shares. I'm a shareholder in a company. That's really cool. And then the following year we go, yeah, but now we're going to reissue them again. And they go, yeah, but hold on a second. I've been here a year. And that new bloke, the ginger guy, he's only been here four months. He's going to get the same as me. And you go, yeah. Do you remember that's how it worked with you? And they were like, yeah, but it's different because I've been here. I just thought, fuck, they're just idiots. Mm. So I just jacked it. I just, just went and got, well, I thought I got offered a job at Channel 4 to, to work over there and, and sort of do something there. And it was just, I just can't deal with politics and greed. And I think that was the first insight I got into it is when you're trying to create the Garden of Eden and you're trying to create something beautiful that's to encourage creativity, to work with clients in different ways. I mean, we just had some of the most incredible, we had clients like, we had Boots number seven, but we also had Anita Roddick for the body shop, competitors working in the same building. And they didn't care mm. because we just went, it doesn't matter. Yeah. We're not going to share information because that's yeah. not how we work. And they just went, yeah, well, I believe you. It was just amazing. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it just it yeah. just melted away because of people's greed. It was all about I want to get paid this much money. I want more shares than other people. I was just like, it's dude. it's such a disappointing um, discovery, isn't it? Actually, and it's yeah. uh, it's very interesting how humans do default to a place where even I don't think they're proud of. But actually, it's all about self-protection yeah. and what's in it for me. And yeah. I think maybe also you were very early on, as you said, in this sort of plight of sharing and caring, whereas actually now maybe... I think if you did it now, it would probably it, be a it, roaring it, uh, success. Yes, yeah, yeah, it'd be amazing. it would be a different time. Yeah. So then you went on and you founded Kamarama, which yeah. literally was from your kitchen table. And you grew that, though, to... 300 people. Well, by the time I walked out, it was 300, yeah. It was famed for your values, such as basing your business on good karma mm. and your no wankers rule. Yeah. Um, for someone whose favourite quote is, it's better to have a hole than an asshole." Yeah. I very much like your policy. What was it like actually discovering this business with your co-founder who had been already your co-founder before? And tell me about that time of growing this agency but why you ended up leaving it? Right. Well, it's a, it was a long time. It was 14 years from start to end. You know, Narish and I had worked together for a long time. We'd done St. Luke's together. We both fell out of love with the place at exactly the same time when we realised that the values that we had were very different to a lot of the values that everybody else had. So we knew each other pretty well. When we did Karma Armour, it was, it was, there was no ambition to grow it. I mean, we didn't even think about that. We just said, why don't we just set up a new agency? 
for me, it's always been about the drive to explore creativity and just I just want to be happy doing stuff that I want to make. And I firmly believe that if you if you do that, something will come, money will come. But if you do it the other way around, you're completely compromising what, what, what ultimately makes you happy. And so we set up this thing. We based it on the concept of karma. Really, I mean, pretty naive. If we do a good thing for you, you'll do a good thing for us. <laughs> I mean, but it, but it kind of makes sense. Yeah. And uh, and so we we started it in my kitchen in Spitalfields. And then we had this sort of weird moment where we we had about ten people, less than that actually. And we had we used to work on IKEA, so we'd launched IKEA at St Luke's, and it had been very successful. And we suddenly found ourselves with the IKEA business, and there were like six people. And so we thought, shit, you know, this is a serious bit of business. So we started doing a lot of work with them. And suddenly we went from being a kind of creative entity that was doing lots of interesting stuff, interesting things that weren't ad campaigns, were half design, consultancy, advertising. It was a mixture of everything. And I find that very stimulating because it's different. The minute we got IKEA, you suddenly go, shit, we've got an account that's paying 90% of our money, one account. So your natural inclination is to go, well, we need to find 10 other accounts that balance that out because we're not going to find another one that's that big because we're eight people. We're competing with huge agencies out there. So suddenly you have to chase all these other bits of business. You become an ad agency. And I could could feel it going rotten then. And then we lost IKEA, unfortunately. And then we suddenly found ourselves really up against the wall. And that's when I had the big divorce with Narish. We had a kind of fallout where we just, you know, when you've got to kind of go from being 30 people with a certain amount of business to losing that business, scaling down to nine or 10 people again, it's pretty harrowing. You know, the thing with all new businesses, you, you know, there's a guy called Nigel Bogle. Bartle Bogle Hegarty said, you're only three phone calls away from annihilation. And I think we'd had about seven phone calls that day. We lost everything. <laughs> and I think you just go, fuck, what do you do? Yeah. You know, you, you, do you go again? Do you jack it? Do you go and get a job somewhere else where it's a bit, a bit more sanity for a for a couple of years and then rebuild, get your motivation back and do it again? Or do you keep going? You know, and you've got to pull yourself up and do it again. And I just thought, I don't want to work in the same way I've been working for the previous two years, try something different. And we, we had it out with each other, had a big old conversation, Narish just left. And I was suddenly left, fuck, I've got, I'm, I'm there on my own. And I was, mm-hmm. I, I was definitely the thick one out of the two. And so it was suddenly, I was like, oh Jesus, what have I done? And then you go, right, well, let's try and rebuild it again. And we settled down and we started pitching again and started winning bits and pieces and just rebuilt it slowly and got it going. And and it was good fun, but it was a kind of, there was a, I remember one of the things that really drove me was when I split with Narish was a kind of personal thing of, God, you know, that just cost us quite a lot of money to pay somebody out. Um, And now I've got to really make it worth it. And you get serious and you get focused, but also well, everything's you, on your shoulders. Yeah, now. but also you get driven, and you sort of think, you know what? I'm gonna. This is a good chance to do something, maybe the way I would have liked to have done it in the first place. And did that for I don't know until 20, 2012, 2011, and then we'd we would we'd done pretty well. You know, we got up to about eighty people. We'd um, got some really good business. We were doing some good work, and then uh, VC came in and. And said it was, and it was quite a weird one because normally what happens is when you when you're doing well as an agency, Martin Sorrell comes in, who's you know obviously one of the owners of the bigger group was one of the owners of the bigger groups, and they come in and they just acquire you and then they give you an earn out, and five years later you piss off some in Norfolk, and um, 
But VC came in and said, we'd like to invest in you and help turn you into a, a, a bigger group so that they can compete with some of the really big groups. But because you've got an interesting culture and an interesting approach, um, you know, obviously based on karma and good works and doing the right thing for our clients, that's pretty refreshing for an advertising, uh, for a business like advertising that is morally and institutionally corrupt. And so it was kind of, it was exciting. And they were going to give us a chance to play on a bigger playing field. And, uh, and so they gave us a chance to express ourselves a little bit more. But by the time that happened, I was kind of like, this is no longer any company that I really want to be part of. And, but I took it really, really personally. We, we suddenly had to merge with a company that was considerably bigger than us. And um, I suddenly found myself sitting in board meetings with 50 people of which I probably wanted a smash in the face, maybe 48 of them. And uh, I just thought, I don't know what I'm doing. And I just hated every minute of it. And uh, I didn't like some of the decisions. I didn't like a lot of the decisions we were making. I mean, we had a very strict no wanker policy when I first set it up. And I've hired a few wankers in my time. But you kind of, you can hunt them out and get rid. But when you're not, when it's not owned Mm -hmm. by you anymore, when Mm -hmm. you're owned by VC, Mm -hmm. also I'd made stupid error of bringing in a lot of people and giving them... (laughs) Equal equity, which was done, mm. which is a huge criminal error, and I suddenly found that those guys didn't share any of the values I did. You know, we had no 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 creative awards was the other thing that we did. Yes, no wankers and do the right thing for our clients. Now, most of the people I was working with would do anything for money, and so it was kind of I just suddenly found myself going from from two of us when we set it up having the same value system maybe not being that quite close as friends but having the same value system which is really important suddenly finding myself outnumbered by three to one by a bunch of other people that really didn't care is that what happened do these people turn on you they were trying to fire. I mean, you know, these are people I, I employed. You employed, and they were trying to fire me from pretty much the minute the three of them got together. Yeah, because I mean, because I'm di- I'm just different. I would always say, don't chase the money. Do the, you know? And they were like, well, we want to make money out of this, so you're yep. you're out, you're in the wrong. So let's try and get rid of you. And I remember thinking a couple of occasions when I, when they tried to do me, and I was like, Jesus, I don't know what do you do here when when people you've employed then try to fire you. My natural inclination is lash out and punch really hard. I just get really angry. I don't like that. I'm, no, I'm sorry, well, call me old-fashioned. I don't like funny employing enough, people. Funny enough, when then, you found a company and then yeah, you get kicked out you think out they'd of have it, a little bit more respect Yeah, maybe, maybe. But hey. Hey, well... So that's we, when I walked out. And you, you walked out. Yeah. Um, well, I, I resigned to set up another business, but they put me on gardening leave for a year. What I'm noticing here is you have these strong values and it's the thread, really, that's running through everything that you do. And you sort of live and die by them. What advice would you give to start up small businesses who may be listening about how and why to create values? You know, your your experience, what, what, what would you say to them? Well, I mean, you know, values, I think, are the single most important thing for you as an individual. And then for you as somebody that can also play a role in society. But I think we're moving into a generation now where values will play an important role in everything that we do. The decisions that we make are absolutely driven by the values of the companies that you're buying stuff off or doing things with. There was a brilliant 
talk I saw online by a guy called John Doer who talked about the two sides of people mercenary and missionary and it talks about the differences and and I remember working with Anita Roddick and you know, she wasn't driven by making money she was driven about mean about discovering meaning and understanding the role that she plays as somebody who's a very influential with a whole bunch of other people so all the stuff that she did for the farmers and the people that supplied her she had two ways of doing it she could have shafted them absolutely like every every other person does yep. but she decided to do the right thing and I remember when I had a meeting with her sitting in there and just thinking bloody it's, it's, it's really not that difficult it's a very simple decision you, you do it right or you do it wrong mm-hmm. and if you do it wrong you've got to live with that now most people if you've got if you've got no moral guidance you can live with that fine well I'm a Catholic so I've got this terrible guilt thing which is if I do it if I do the wrong thing then I'm going to burn in hell mm-hmm which is not nice. No. You know, I live in Haggerston. That's close enough anyway. I don't want to burn in hell on top of that. And so you just think, well, fuck it. I'll, you know, I'll just do what I think is right. And then suddenly it becomes really clear because you lose mm-hmm. all the shackles. You just suddenly become very liberated. I don't have to think about business Dave or home Dave. I just become Dave. And it's just, and I just do what I think is right at the time. So I would always say, absolutely trust your instincts, trust your judgment, trust your integrity and your moral guidance, absolutely. Because everybody has got it. It just depends on where you leave it when you walk through the door at the office or when you, you, know, when you start your job or when you work with other people. And a lot of people leave it. They hide it because they think that's clever because it's about mercenary, making money, controlling, building empires, shitting over everybody. I don't think it is. I think we're, we're in that era where it's not about that anymore. It's, we're in, I think we're... I, I don't know if it's a, a more female era, but I think it's more value, value-driven era where it's not that paternal machismo thing of men building empires it's about working together in groups and mentoring people and helping and 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 providing a service yeah yeah, absolutely you can feel the change yeah as i looked at the business landscape i realized there was so much wisdom out there which hadn't been uncovered And yet, sharing it with the world would empower so many. It's why at Holly & Co, we have created a new world you can see, watch, read and listen to today. With a single aim, to support you as you navigate your own steps on your business journey. Bringing you advice and business inspiration like never before. The Advice Hub is a free online library, somewhere to go when feeling lost or needing some guidance. We delve into lessons learnt the hard way so you don't have to with these articles, written by myself alongside experts and other small business founders who share their own experiences. We cover everything from top marketing tips on how to increase your email subscribers to the truth behind working with your partner Or how about overcoming parental guilt as a female founder, a subject I know will resonate. I'd love for you to go and experience it for yourself. So after this podcast, head over to holly.co and see what advice is most useful to you. And if there's something you'd like to see us cover, please do get in touch. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. So it's safe to say that you were pretty burnt out by advertising world. And I've heard well, I always you, have been, yeah. Yeah, and I've heard you say that advertising is a criminally creative-less yeah. industry. It was interesting when Not in High Streets was growing and we were, you know, securing in budgets, you know, proper chunks of money to start this advertising because it was always in-house. Yeah. And I couldn't wait. You know, I come from publicists and now 
I was going to employ an advertising agency. And, um, How did that work out for you? Well, some of the work, actually, that was pitched, it really was criminal. The amount of times I was pitched to with the same ideas, actually bonkers ideas, this is the thing. And I honestly was pitched to um, from an agency naming no names with um, a few slides that said, not in the high street is for people who make shit by those who give a shit. And it was always so wacky and it was always trying to get noticed and it always had a slight skew to it and slightly sometimes sort of, you know, Adam's family-esque-ness. It's all of the superficial shit about mm-hmm. awards and all of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. that doesn't really mean anything in the real world. It, it means stuff in sort of business, but in the real world it doesn't cut through. And so that's why they'll make it wacky is because they're sitting there trying to impress their peers. It was just a, a, a thing where I think the state of advertising at the moment, I, I, I don't know what the future is. What's, what do you think the future is? I think, well, there's a big issue with um, you've got clients who are really smart, which is good. You've also got clients who don't really like ad agencies, which is good, and have every right not to because in the era that we were both starting, I mean, you know, clients were being ripped off left, right and centre by agencies. And, and, you know, even with your own brand, you would have paid quite a lot of money to have had people presenting stuff back to you, one, that you already knew, but two, they didn't really take it anywhere interesting and was probably not going to work. And and then you've also got the bigger issue, which is, and, and you know, budgets are being cut down all the time. You've got great big organisations like WPP and Publicis now who are, who are trying to you know, buy everybody because they're just, it's like Goliath and you know, these yeah. huge monsters that are fighting over downtown Tokyo. And then also you've then got a massive problem, which is ed- education is too expensive. So you've got loads of smart people who can't afford to get into the business, but also don't want to get into the business because it's all run by horrible white men who like chasing interns around and doing cocaine at Christmas parties. So it's a really bad combination mm-hmm. of lots and lots of different things that I think has brought the industry to its probably to its lowest ebb, which the work sucks. I mean, the work mm-hmm. is awful. Mm-hmm. But it's now just become a colouring in exercise. And I think if you're genuinely creative and you really care about working with clients and doing the right thing for them, you will find a different way, which is what we're trying to do now with our latest venture, which is Unlimited Inc., which is just to work with startups and genuinely help them with strategy, consultancy, creative work, everything that they might want to help them get out or get off the beach mm-hmm. into yep. kind of safer land. And and so it's this sort of kind of weird thing. I mean, I think the business has just become what it's become and it's just – it's it's lost track of what it's supposed to do. I don't think it understands what it does anymore, which is we're a cert- we provide a service for people who can't do what we do. But most clients know how to do what we do better than we do because we've we've Well, it's not moved with the times, No, is it? not at all. In any way. I'm feeling it's where small could win. Yeah. As in, I think this is where the independents, the small businesses, have a chance to cut through, do things differently, get noticed. And so your new venture, Unlimited Inc., where you only work with startups, what, what's been your experience now of working with startups? And is there any tips that you could give to small businesses who do want to get noticed, but of course their budgets are absolutely limited? The reason we set it up was it was driven by something that used to happen pretty much every week when I was at Kamarama and, and the latest ad agency that I worked with after Kamarama, which was called CPMB, you'd get lots of interesting businesses would come through the door and they'd go, we'd love you to help us out. And we'd have to turn them away because they didn't have enough money. Um, we'd say, how much money have you got? And they go, we've got 30,000 for a project. And the ad agency would go, we need 50 grand a month to make it work. 
Now, that's a huge amount of money in anybody's business. Now, the minute you start getting into the realms of that kind of money, it becomes highly competitive. So we sat there and thought, well, if we were really small, if there were only three of us, you could work on those 30 grand projects because 30 grand, I'd actually be quite pleased with that. And, uh, and so we just said, right, why don't we set up this new thing and we work with any clients, but predominantly small clients because they are... They have more passion. One of the things that used to drive me mad about working with big clients is I'm dealing with, you know, my day-to-day -day contact is the marketing manager who is terrified of making a decision above his or her pay grade. And then you're a million miles away from the founder who might have more ambition than just, why don't we just try and hit last year's numbers and beat them by 1% so I'll get my summer bonus. You know, the founder wants to take over the world. Yeah. And so we just said, instead of turning right and chasing all the big ad agency clients that everyone else is after. Let's just turn left and work with these these guys. And it had been driven by a conversation I've been having with a guy I know well called Marcus Exall, who is a, a sort of angel investor. He's been working with a bank called Moneys. Now, Moneys is our founding client. You can open a current account in two minutes with um, no credit history, no UK address. You just have two forms of ID. And I found that fascinating because my parents both came from, you know, Denmark and Italy, they came over with nothing and managed to make it work. And it, the, the courage that it takes for an individual to up, up their roots, you know, wherever they're from, and go to a new country for the benefit of their future generations, I find incredible. And uh, so the idea of working with these guys was just beautiful. It was a perfect start for us as, as Unlimited. And we happened to sit opposite the founder, Norris, who's this guy, a brilliant Estonian guy who had the same issue. He came over here. Got a job, got a flat, couldn't get a bank account. So he went back to Estonia. Look, the, you know, the, the short version of the story is he went back to Estonia and he set up this bank so he could help other people. And uh, you know, whether you're a, a Latvian plumber or an architect going to go in, you know, from Germany working in Saudi Arabia, there is a kind of red thread that goes through all these people, which is you have that courage and the guts to... You, yeah, that yeah. Un, we call it unstoppable. We call them the bank for the unstoppable. So the, the unstoppable thing that drives you to keep going. It makes all the hair on my arms stand up yeah. when I think about it because yeah. I just find that so invigorating. And suddenly you're out of that world of, let's just do an ad for the sale that's going to be next week and we've got no money and you've got 10 days to do the ad, to we, yeah. don't, we don't know what we want. Yeah. You know, they don't have a marketing department. We're working with Norris and we sit there and listen to him talking about stuff and all the other team. It's big, big business now. You know, they've just raised... 60 million, I think, with their, with their Series B. Oh, fantastic. So they're doing unbelievably well. And we're sitting in there, and it's just a fantastic thing. For, but we're only three people still. Because actually, when you think when about it, it, you know, you founded companies, so you're a founder. Yeah. And founders like to talk to other founders because you have a sort of way of cutting to the chase. You have a, a way of well, communicating. It's a kind of a shared respect. A, with shared respect you've because you've scars. Hundred, yeah. yeah, you've got yeah. battle scars, I call them. Yeah, yeah, so I'm covered in them myself. Yeah. So finally, you were actually talking founder to founder yeah. rather than founder to marketing director, marketing director who's and got no skin in the game who's you know, got no skin yeah. and so maybe this is your path now yeah. you know you found your tribe interestingly when we talk about these small businesses that you're helping and we talk about those limited budgets we think back to what people used to spend and still do spend on tv and even though from my experience or from what i'm seeing is are people watching tv anymore i know that younger generation are mostly watching youtube or listening to podcasts and and the world is changing fast. When you think about budgets spent on TV or right now we're at Christmas, you know, so big budgets are being spent on Christmas ads. What do you think of the latest campaigns? 
I can't stand them. I mean, I think Christmas is a really weird one. I mean, it's you know, the, the amount of money that gets spent by the by the supermarkets and the big department stores, driven predominantly by uh, John Lewis and the success that they've had over the last 10 years. I just don't get it. I don't get it at all. They just become these really waffly brand ads that don't really do anything for me. They just become bits of content. I mean, look at that new John Lewis ad, but it's, basically it's the Elton John story um, with some slightly flaky lookalikes. I just kind of look at it. I go, it's, it's the Elton John story sponsored by John Lewis. I don't even know what it means. I don't think people look at advertising the way that most people in advertising think they do. I don't know. It's just not my bag at all. So I, I so what do you think the future is there? And do you think this is going to continue? I don't think TV as a medium is dead. I think it's still very, very powerful. But I think the way that clients use media to connect to audiences has to change. And, you know, we've gone from blanket bombing to sniping. And I think the way that well, when you listen to your podcast, and like I said, I told you earlier, I've listened to quite a few of those and you keep ruining me, having me in tears. But there's an engagement that you don't get from very many other mediums. And um, I just think that we're finding newer and more interesting and more powerful ways of connecting with people. So you're asking for a reaction, not just tears followed by, oh, let's go and have a cup of tea and a, and a digestive on the sofa and I'll forget about what I've just watched, yeah. which is what I think happens with a lot of advertising. When I listen to a lot of those podcasts, now, all right, you're working on a longer medium, but the engagement is is unbelievable. And it makes me want to get up and put my foot through something and go off and change and make things better for me and for people that I care about. I don't know. A lot of brands don't have much class and they will just say anything. And and I think that's what will happen is I think we'll end up in a in a in an era where there will be really really dirty retail stuff and then there will be deeper more engaging things that don't sit in that TV realm. You said that the best advertising campaign you thought was Top Gun yeah. as in terms of recruiting for the US Air Force and that it was not traditional advertising. And so it's it's what you're almost alluding to here as well, is that this sense of putting things in boxes and calling it advertising or that there are only three or four mediums that you can then put those boxes through yeah. on that conveyor belt is completely changing. And Totally. You know, and I, I hadn't ever thought of Top Gun being a great recruiter for Well, the I, think, I think, that you know, the, the thing that's interesting is the world and culture creates change and makes things happen. And, you know, I'm sure Pearl Harbor or, you know, had a massive role in recruiting people for the Army or the Air Force because they mm. thought, you know what, this is something that I've taken very personally. With, um, you know, Top Gun, I mean, they just glamorised that. It wasn't dirty in any way. It was beautiful. You know, they had these guys in six-packs all, you know, playing volleyball on the beach. I mean, it's like, what's not to like? And then flying a jet upside down. It had everything that you'd ever want, but it kind of... <laughs> You know, I don't know. I'm sure I don't know whether the the Air Force or the Army were kind of like we need a film that's going to help us recruit more people. I don't think they, that happened. I think it just happened to be one of those things that did happen. In the same way that YMCA by the Village People drove a lot of business to the YMCA. But it's interesting when when you get stuff that sits in culture, sits right in the centre of culture, rather than advertising, which doesn't even sit anywhere near the centre of culture. It doesn't even sit on the outskirts of culture. Sits in Adland, which is mm -hmm. bullshit town on the yep. edge of fuck offville. So when you get you know stuff that genuinely sits in the centre of culture, it'll have an effect. Yeah, and um, and I think that's what we're looking to do. And how do you think you know based on that? we can change the world of advertising. I heard you speak about a school that you yeah. wanted to set up, you know, so we need far more people like yourself. So 
how is that going to change? And do you think it can? I don't, uh, without sounding too down on the whole thing, I don't think it will. I think we've 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 wrapped ourselves up in a real pickle now, because as I said earlier, I think education is way too expensive. Education has become business now. Mm-hmm. Uh, to do a one year course, which is no time at all, you don't learn anything in a year. Costs a lot of money. And the only people who can afford to do that are either fat, fat, podgy little white kids whose parents work in advertising, which we don't need any more of, or, or a bunch of people who, you know, from overseas who are going to go back anyway and go and do it back in their home country. So you've got this real dilemma. And, and this college that I was trying to set up was called Gratis, which was free for, for all. And it was to be part funded by government and um, industry. And uh, the idea was that you would do an 18-month course. Six months would be a boot camp where you'd just have, you'd just be grilled in what it means to be creative and entrepreneurial to try and find those people that are going to be that next generation of shit kickers that are going to come in and try to challenge and change it. And then there'd be a year where you'd work in industry and you would have... 20 companies that would all put money in to sort of create a wagon train and you would work I don't know, the people we spoke to like Ted Baker you'd go and do a month in Ted Baker you're going to do a month at mm-hmm. Channel 4 you do a month at an yeah. ad agency wow. a design but it would all be different creative yeah. companies yeah. that will allow you to just express yourselves because the great thing about being creative is when you get in it's a bit like a corridor with lots of doors in it you can try advertising I went advertising I've done TV I've done art I've done a whole bunch of things tried, tried as many doorways as possible and so that was the whole point of gratis. The problem we came up against was uh, government were very interested in doing it, but didn't have any money because it was an election year and industry has got no money. And so I just thought, fuck it, you're never going to make it happen. It will never work. And then it became one of those things where should we just do it for advertising? I said, no, no, the last thing you want to do is do it just for advertising. There's plenty of ad colleges out there and they work. My fascination is if the next Johnny Ive or the next Steve Jobs or the next interesting person happens to be an Indian girl who lives on the Isle of Skye, what hope and what chance has she got? Because, you know, when you paid the 12 grand or whatever it is to pay for the course for a year, you've then got to also live down here, which is going to be a huge amount of money. And you just, it just, it's awful. But then also the, the industry misses out on getting interesting people. You know, I lived in Tower Hamlets for a long time, right in the middle of the Bangladeshi community, which not wanting to sound too racist, but Bangladeshis and Asian kids are pretty entrepreneurial. And uh, pretty smart as well. Certainly a lot smarter than kids I grew up with. I think the business could probably do with a little bit of that. In Bangletown, in Tower Hamlets, they live pretty much on the corner of the most creative, in inverted commas, area in London, which is, what, Spitalfields and Old Street, Shoreditch. Why would they even... It's probably not even on their radar. Yeah. And it's it, only by real luck that sometimes these people get through the bloody through the net, and you can can. And do you still themselves. have that dream for the college? Or the is, only way I'm ever going to do it is if I'd made as much money as those assholes, those people I used yes. to work with at my previous agency, then I probably would have done it because I would have had the money to do that and maybe a little bit more influence. The problem I just kept hitting was a wall that was like, "There's no money. We can give you five grand, but we needed quite a lot of money to help do it." Well, never say never, you know, these things, you know, what I've noticed so far on my journey is that you can just put these ideas to the side for whatever reason it hasn't happened. And it's not to say it won't. Well, and, hopefully it will. You know, and hopefully it will. Yeah. So on your gardening leave, you started screen printing yes. at Print Club London. So many creatives I speak to go back to making things as a sort of form of therapy or creative outlet. Yeah. I know when I went through quite a difficult transition, I went back to um, making vegetable wreaths. Now, it actually 
actually makes me cringe. Making vegetables. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It makes me quite cringy to even say this to you. But it had been so long since I had actually been creative. I'd used my hands. I really had a moment because it was blissful for me because I had been in business, business mode and and actually being creative, it was it was very therapeutic. Art has always been something I think that you've wanted to pursue. Was yeah. it a, was it a necessary um, thing for you to do at this period of your life? Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, I, I, you know, I, we 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 talk about advertising or the creative industries as being a very creative business, and I'm kind of doing the little finger movements. I don't think it is. I think it's become a production business. I don't think we use our brains that much. Clients know exactly what they want. They know how much money they've got. They know what works. They know what doesn't work. If you do what works, it'll work. Thank you very much. You can have some money for that. And it just becomes a kind of colouring in exercise. So when I left um, Karma Armour, I, I had this sort of ambition. to. I just thought, right, I've got a year where I'm not allowed to work. It's quite a long time to sort of sit there and stew, and they put you on this gardening need to stop you taking clients and staff. But you know, there, were no, there was nobody that would work there that I wanted to take, so it was fine. <laughs> um, and uh, and so I, I had this sort of dream of right, I'd really like to learn how to save someone's life, and then I really wanted to learn how to sculpt because that was something I didn't do when I was at college, and also screen print. And I just found I, I live in Dalston at the time. I was living in Dalston, and I had a uh, and there was I found a screen printing course just up the road at Print Club London, and uh, I booked it. I left on the Friday, got on my motorbike, rode up the street, sat in the garden, and kind of stewed for about a couple of days, and didn't quite know what I was doing. And then it just happened to be on the Sunday, I was doing, I was booked in to do this course, and they just teach you how to screen print, and it's just mucky, and you know you. It's a really, really, I'd recommend it. If, if you ever want to do something like that, I mean, you should do it. It's absolutely brilliant. And you just learn how to make something. And I'd spent 30 years in advertising coming up with ideas and never making them. I'd give them to somebody else. And I loved making stuff. And so doing that course, it was like an epiphany for me. It was like a, just changed my life. I mean, I know it sounds overdramatic, but it seriously changed my life because I, I suddenly had the ability to come up with ideas and, and create them very, very quickly. Whereas in advertising... You know, no. it'd take you nine months. It'd take you three weeks just to organise the meeting to get the five white guys that you need to discuss the brief. Whereas I can have a, you know, I mean, yesterday morning I was printing before I went into work. It's open 24 hours this place, so I can go in there anytime. But there's a purity of, mm. I like getting inky on my fingers. I've got blisters all over my hands. But that's just the way I like it. And it's really, really simple. And I just go down there and I can do whatever I want. Sometimes they're disastrous. Sometimes they sell really well. Sometimes they don't. I don't give a fuck because mm. the only person I'm, my, I'm the client and I don't have to worry about compromise. I don't have to worry about an audience. I don't have to worry about messing up for a client who's got huge amount of money. I, mean, I do that on my day job, mm-hmm. which I still enjoy. Yeah. But um, with the art, I find it totally invigorating because I can you also you. I'm lucky that I can use a lot of the knowledge that I've got from advertising about strategy, audiences looking for a hole in the market, all the business stuff that we pick up doing our own thing to then apply that to my art, but then not compromise. You created a poster back in 2003 when you were um, with Kamarama, which became iconic. It said, make tea, not war. And it had a photo of Tony Blair carrying a gun with a teacup on his head in protest against the Iraq war, which is now part of the collection at the V&A and hangs, am I right in saying, in the Toronto Museum of Modern Art. That must have been an amazing moment. Do you think that's part of your mission or why you're angry about the lack of creativity in, in advertising is due to knowing 
that art or creativity actually really can change the world and make it a better place? I think it can. Um, I think, interestingly, but that poster, I mean, it was driven by a kind of propaganda. And I think that advertising is propaganda. You know, you're asking Mm -hmm. people to do things or stop doing things or buy things. And so there's a kind of, there's a sort of messaging. And I I think we've... uh, but and I like them when they're really, really blunt. I, I, I was inspired by a book that my Italian grandmother gave me. That was a big um, sort of annual of um, sort of military propaganda posters through the ages. And I, was, I, I mean, it was all in Italian as well, so I couldn't even read it. But I remember being inspired by it because I just love the kind of the graphic nature of an image that's trying to create drama with as a few words as possible. Because you, you're asking people who are probably quite busy at the time to you know to sit there and look at a poster and then remember it and do something about it. And I find that I find that really, really stimulating. So when we did the poster for that, it was absolutely driven by that kind of backstory. But also it was, uh, I knew that it was, you know, the anti-war march was going to be, you know, a lot of people were going to get killed, unfortunately. You know, a lot of soldiers are going to go out there and die and a lot of the opposition were going to, a lot more of the opposition were going to die, but also going to be a whole bunch of civilians that were going to suffer. And so normally what happens is these, these placard, bearing marches tend to be quite po-faced and dry mm-hmm. so there was going to be a lot of don't attack Iraq you know word plays and yep. my blood or their blood on my hands and all that kind of stuff it was all very dry and very very serious and we just thought well why can't you do something that is a bit more genuine to the person who's holding the banner without trying to upset too many people and I was working with a guy called Scott Leonard when we and we did it together and he suggested it and so we did uh, make tea not war and then I just comped it's the, the gun and the body is actually the creator of the gun, Kalashnikov, the Russian guy, and then just put Tony Blair's head on it and put a teacup on his head. I mean, it was thrown together in 20 seconds. So if, if you look at the artwork, it's the worst piece of work you've ever seen. And we printed 100 of them ourselves with our own money, and we had our logo on it. And um, a lot of agencies would never have done anything. I mean, no agency, no, no client wants to talk about yep. Brexit because it's politics, and if you if you divide opinion... God forbid you might do something naughty. Mm-hmm. And we said, fuck it, we'll do it. We'll put our name on it. But at the time, we were like three years old. So nobody heard of us. I remember we printed 100 of them. I couldn't go on the march because I was looking after one of my kids. Scott went down on the march, handed out all these placards. And then in the morning, I went to go and get the newspapers. And the, the Sunday Times had the front cover of all the people on the march. And there were a dozen people all holding these banners. And I thought, oh, my God. And then... I, bought loads of papers and it was everywhere and I think it was because it was having a bit of a laugh but it went berserk it went absolutely crazy but I think that that purpose of advertising or propaganda or message making whatever you want to call it does have a role and it can influence people and I think that's what advertising should do it should make you think things you know the, the, the the lucky position I'm in now with with the guys at Unlimited is that we're working with clients who are really nice you know monies will will transform people's lives for the better there's another brand we're working with called lightfoot will transform the world for the better when you work with the, when you look at the founders and they've got a really really good product that's going to be really really useful to a lot of people dude i'll do anything for them i would die for them because they're going to make the world a better place and if i can be part of that money will come but if i can be part of that that's an amazing thing to have achieved and be part of it's so beautiful hearing you say that the fact that the dreams can be absolutely huge and can change the world it's so interesting that from all of your experience all this past you're sort of concluding that you know these small guys these founders these people with the dreams yourself with the dreams really can change things 
I'd love to talk to you about my utterly favourite subject and our uh, weapon against the grey, which is creativity. And I actually say the word grey as my mantra at Holly & Co is bringing colour to grey. And whilst researching you, another thing that we share, not just stationary cupboards, is that I read that yours is life is too short to be beige. Yes. Do you think creativity is the absolute key to all issues? It's interesting. At CPB, which was the American agency I I started to run after my one year of um, non-compete and before we did Unlimited, I created these massive banners. I'm going to go and pick them up this weekend, actually, because I don't want them anymore. But one of them is creativity is the cure. And in fact, you know what? I'm going to give that one to you. (gasps) Don't. No. It's fine. I'm going to start crying already. I'm not going to start crying. It's fine. Wow. I absolutely believe that creativity is the cure. It, it's the thing, you know, problem solving or creativity or whatever you want to call it, or people who like doing that, whether you're an accountant or whatever, it's about solving a problem and using your mind to do that uh, and then working with a whole bunch of other people to make it even more powerful. You know, I like to be, feel, I, I'm not interested in personal glory. I like the, I've always wanted to feel like I've been part of a gang. That's why I like riding motorbikes. There's something about, you're, you're in a gang of other bikers. And when we did St. Luke's, it was a gang of people that we all were all, all different, all totally different, but we all achieved something that was amazing. At Kamarama, there were a group of people, probably in its heyday in like 2000, from 2005 to 2010 or 11, where we achieved, we just had such a laugh, just such a laugh. It was brilliant. You had a pivotal moment when you turned 50. Yeah. Could you talk about that and, and why it had such a profound effect? Yeah, well, I had a... Um, I had a thing when I was 14 where I had an accident where I died. And I was technically dead for about four minutes, five minutes. My mum found me, or my sister found me with my mum, and they got me in the hospital and uh, got me going again. And, you know, within a short space of time, I was back at school, but properly useless. I wasn't, I wasn't that good beforehand, but it didn't really, that didn't help. Uh, and so I've had a kind of slight thing about, uh, I don't know, if it's death or life or kind of making sure that I use the time that I've got because I'm already on borrowed time. You know, I've already had one close scare. But uh, when I hit 50, I suddenly thought, well, shit, there's no getting out of this one. You know, 14, you can get away with it. When you're 50, that mm-hmm. train's coming, baby. And you know it's going to hit. And it's just a question of when. And uh, I suddenly realised I had fewer years ahead of me than I've got behind me. And you know what? I just don't want to have another day where I feel shit. I don't like getting up in the morning and dreading going into the office. I don't like feeling sick every time I've got to go into a meeting or meet certain people or just feel angry. I thought life is way too short for that. So when I was 50, I suddenly thought, you know what? I'm sick of spending my whole time trying to look after other people to the detriment of myself. And I thought I'm running out of time. Somewhere between, I think it's going to happen between 60 and 70, I'm going to probably fall apart. So that's 15 years. That's 15, and 15 summers. And especially when you live in this country, when summers are really, all right, last year was good, but or this year was good, but, mate, the last one before that was 77. So it's been a long time. 15 summers is no time at all. goes like that. Wow. And I suddenly thought, you know what, I don't ever want to waste another day being pissed off or being angry or being feeling suspicious or any, any of that stuff. So then my, my agenda was just, I just want to work with nice people and have fun. Tell me about one of the proudest moments, your greatest highs in your career. I remember holding my daughter. She was born 
C-section. Now, it's got nothing to do with my career, but it was, again, it was mm. a big part of my career because I was at Kamarama, um, set up Kamarama in 2000. She arrived in 2004. And I think I'd spent so much time, you know, when you're trying to build a business and people are kind of telling you how dangerous it is and how scary it is and, you know, it's, fuck, it's so visceral, you know, you're kind of involved in every single bit. And I remember when I held her, the doctor gave it to her in the Homerton Hospital, and I held her, and it was like, I actually, it was the weird, it was weird. It was holding something that you created, but tangibly holding something. You know, I'd created lots of things in the past, but I remember when I held her, it was just the weirdest thing. It was the most amazing thing. And I think that sort of drove me to try and do things that were tangible. You know, there's a lot of bullshit that goes on in the business world where we kind of create things, and it's t- on paper, they, they kind of they don't mean anything. But when you can create something that, you can actually hold or you can feel in your heart, you know. It's um, quite amazing. And it sort of, it gets me now. Fucking hell, you've done it. It's a beautiful thing you say. And, you know, I'd always wanted to be a mum since I was 16 years old. And, you know, when I created Not in the High Street, Harry, my son, was three months old. And I ended up not having any more children. The thing, though, for me was that I do have my Harry, Uh but I have my business baby not in the high street. I have my third business or third baby, in a sense, Holly & Co. Yeah. And so I think that that's the sort of where you were describing holding your um, your beautiful daughter. And when you have tears in your eyes, in a sense, when talking about your business is because you gave birth to it. You know, that's something that you created. And it was hugely, you know, it's a huge part of your life. And and the role and that you play, every, every part of your fucking fibre is something that you put into it. And it sort of gets back to your thing. That's why I was kind of so livid when it kind of ended the way it ended. But, yeah, it's, it's quite weird. I don't, I don't look at any business or any art, anything that I've achieved as a, an ad that I've done in any way like that. I think it's – the thing for me has always been what's the thing that you create that allows that stuff to, to appear – so for me, it's the culture and the living entity that is the business. And like I said, the best the best description I ever had was when a guy I know came into the office and he said, fuck me, man, you can feel it. Mm. And and that's what I mean. It's like mm. the emotion. Can't put that, that on I had the next when I, when I, when I, when you? I, no, no, you can't. I mean, it, you know, it makes sense. You can tick all the boxes oh, yeah, like yeah. it's making this much it's money and we've magic. done this. It's a life it's, force. Uh, it's, it's in, you know, that's mm. the thing that drives me. And the only other time I've ever felt that was when I held my two kids. And your lowest moment? Man, I've had so many. Um, I remember there was one when it was all unraveling, when I split up with, when I parted ways with Narish, trying to get back onto the ladder because it literally felt we'd on the third step and then slipped and fell into the shit again. And uh, I remember we'd pitched for a piece of business and we'd been told we'd won it. And I was like, brilliant. That would be great. Won't make any money, but it'll be a really good piece of work and it'll be good fun to do. And they're really nice people. And then I got the phone call when clients just called and he said he's given it to the agency that they knocked off in the first part of the pitch. And I was so angry. And I was just like, fuck, you know, what do I do now? Just when I thought we got onto the step, I've fallen back in again. But there's this sort of thing where, again, it's just have a cup of tea and a biscuit. But I remember at the time it hurt so much. But I think it was just because it was the last thing I really wanted. I just wanted a little bit of sunshine. But I think mm-hmm. what happens is we all go through life. Mm-hmm. I call them film script days where you just go, you know what? I put my hand into the, the, the cutlery drawer and I put my finger into a mousetrap. And then from then on, the day is just, you've just got to ride it. 
and maintain your sanity and especially if you're like me where you think you're a fraud you think you're stupid or you know you're stupid so you spend your whole time just thinking fuck me what am i doing the right thing am i even in the right business here i've constantly think that <laughs> should i be doing something i could just be a pool cleaner in malta and i'd probably do all right I'd be all right but then i know i'd be bored shitless i could just get a boring job at a big agency getting paid pretty quite well to do the kind of stuff I absolutely hate doing, but I'd kill people. I'd go mad. I'd be in jail on two weeks. And something I thought I wanted to bring into this podcast is a recommendation. Who would you recommend that maybe, I don't think I'll ever meet another Dave, but who could I bring onto this show? Who would you think was a great guest, someone that's inspired you? Yeah, I would say definitely Tony Kay. The, the director I worked with him when I was when I was pretty young he did I think it was the first TV job I'd ever done at HHCL he did a beautiful British gas film where a dog walks in the shot and then a cat walks into shot in front of an open fire and they kiss and then a little mouse walks in and the cat kisses it. the mouse he did that right I was just knocked out by that and then he also did probably one of my favourite films ever uh, commercials ever um, for Dunlop but then he also went off and became a film director. Now, he is one of the most unique people I've ever worked with. I mean, I found it the most stimulating, absolutely terrifying to work with him. But I look back on it, I think, Christ, I'm really, really glad I met him. I'm really glad I know him. I'm really glad I work with him. But the great thing about him is he has a value system that he will not trip for. He does, mm -hmm. doesn't give a shit. He does what he wants to do. Mm. But I would definitely recommend Tony Kay. Thank you. Thank you, Dave, so much for the most fascinating chat today. I think it's safe to say you're one of the most creative people I've had the pleasure of ever meeting. And it's inspiring to see you follow your happiness with such conviction rather than following the money. I hope maybe that we might collaborate more in the future if you'd to. have me. And, um, and anybody else that's listening. I mean, it's, you know, that's what we're there to do is we, we, we our end line is here, we're here to help and I would love to. I just like working with passionate people. Well, we come to the end. And as um, you might have seen, I asked my guests to prepare a letter to their younger selves. And just thank you, Dave, for sharing so much with us today. And over to you. Right. <laughs> OK. Dear 14-year-old David, it's January 1978 and in two months you'll be dead. But don't panic, it's only for a few minutes and within no time at all, you'll be back to your lazy, nonchalant self. The great news is that your brief tussle with the Grim Reaper will give you an insatiable energy and desire to leave a positive mark in everything that you do. You're at a fantastically exciting and challenging age right now. The fun and new experiences of puberty, parties and girls colliding with the grown-up discipline of applying yourself to studying hard for your exams to lay foundations for your future. You fail at both miserably. You lose your virginity later than anyone else in Northern Europe and you achieve passes in only two of your GCSE O-levels, art and woodwork. It looks pretty grim, doesn't it, David? Again, don't panic. You will be remembered as the thickest kid in your year at school, but art and woodwork will be very useful in your future career, trust me. The stubbornness, lack of respect of authority and laziness that has helped you achieve so little at junior school and secondary school is something that you take with you into further education and specifically to art school where you study graphics. Again, don't panic. Even though you are thick and lazy, you have one undeniable superpower. You are incredibly lucky. And a chance meeting with a customer at your dad's Italian restaurant will open a door into a career that will refine and define you. Your career will not be easy, but it will be rewarding. 
It will be a series of ups and downs and highs and lows and will constantly challenge your personal values, integrity and moral fibre. But, but the thing that will drive you will be your stubbornness to accept politics, bullshit and bureaucracy and create something to change the rules of business. Your journey will begin at a small agency called TBWA, but before you get started, you'll be made redundant in your first year. Up and down. You'll get another job at WCRS quite quickly. Your bosses will be the best creative team in London, but within two years they will resign and set up their own agency and you will get fired. High and low. Don't panic. The phrase don't panic is becoming a theme, isn't it? But stay strong. Just as you're beginning to think you're not cut out for advertising, your stars will finally align and you will get a job with your old bosses and their humble startup HHCL will become the most exciting creative agency of the 90s. The challenger headset and the all-hands-on-deck mentality of the startup world will possess you. The visceral feeling you bring will bring the very best out of you and will inspire you for the rest of your life. At the age of 28, you'll get a chance to run an agency and two years later co-found your first business, which will defy all the logic and traditions of Adland and go on to win Agency of the Year and be called the most frightening company on earth by the Harvard Business Review. You'll work client-side and in 2000 will set up another agency that also wins Agency of the Year and grows pretty big. One of the things that will become apparent as you navigate through the highs and lows and twists and turns of the advertising business is that you are passionate and opinionated and that you hate politics, bullshit and most of the people that work in the business. But instead of relenting, the thing that drives you and keeps you going is the ability to build businesses and cultures that attract clients and staff who feel exactly the same way that you do. The annoying thing is that as these businesses become successful, they become a little bit more corporate and just when they're at their most successful, you get fed up and leave. You're an oddball, but don't let that bring you down. Stay strong and don't panic. You will employ brilliant people and idiots in equal measure. You will create brilliant work and horrendous controversy and get yourself into all sorts of trouble. You will be inspired by wonderful people and hugely disappointed by Machiavellian arseholes, all in equal measure. You will share equity of your company with partners that don't share the values of your company and you will realise they don't deserve it. Even more ridiculous is the fact that you give them equal equity you fucking idiot. Even worse is it will come back to haunt you and they will make much, 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 much more money than you ever would when they sell the company to a bunch of accountants. Hindsight is a great thing. There'll be one Christmas party when you watch one of your partners chasing girls around the place. I didn't do it at the time, but it'd be great if you'd smash him in the mouth. Ups and downs, highs and lows, your career will be many things but never boring. In 2014, you'll hit a low point. The company you founded 14 years earlier is no longer a place you want to work. So you do what you always do and walk out. You'll feel sick, angry and devastated and it will have to start all over again. But as I said, you're lucky and as you begin your year of enforced gardening leave, you'll have an epiphany at a screen printing course and your life will change as you rediscover what it means to be creative. After almost 35 years in advertising, when most people are mentally finished, you'll be re-inspired and re-energised to keep doing it your way. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the time you have with your wonderful children. They grow up fast. Never give up. Don't let the bastards grind you down. Lots of love. Me, you, whatever. I just can't tell you for so many reasons what meeting you and hearing your story is for me because, you know, life is tough and business is tough and finding businesses is not as easy as they all say. But um, I knew that this was going to be a special meeting and our souls are very much more combined than you would think. And so I thank you so much thank for sharing for your story and how much everyone will get out of this. So thank I you, Dave, so. for being you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. <laughs> If you've enjoyed this episode with Dave, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversation 
with the legendary Sir John Hegarty, founder of BBH and brand Mega Genius. You can find any of my past episodes by searching wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening, if it's helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 